0: Welcome to The People's Lawyer, a podcast from the National Association of Attorneys General, the nonpartisan organization representing America's Attorneys General. Attorneys General have a unique role as defenders of the public interest and often work collectively on nonpartisan issues that have a wide impact on people's daily lives. In our second season, we've invited Attorneys General from different political parties to discuss how they work together in a bipartisan way to serve their constituents and protect the rule of law. In this episode, we welcome Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser and Idaho Attorney General Lawrence Wazden for a conversation about the opioid epidemic, e-cigarettes, and the important role attorneys general play in defending the rule of law. Well, generals, thank you so much for joining us today. We're delighted to have you both on the podcast. Um, I wanted to jump right in in a conversation about you know the role of attorneys general in advising state government agencies and your legislatures, um, issuing formal opinions to state agencies. I think that's something that many of our listeners will already know about. So it would be great to have you give us some examples of how you guide state agencies, how you work with your legislatures, and any examples that you think would be helpful for people to understand. Um, General Weiser, do you want to kick that one off?
1: I would really rather let uh, General Wasden's start because I've learned from him on this point. So I'll start with some opening flavor. Let him get in some details, and then maybe I'll elaborate. We are living in a time when trust in the rule of law is really in a precarious place. Our jobs need to be to be trusted, to be fair-minded, to tell it like it is. Uh, we have too many concerns about legal institutions being seen as um, untrustworthy people viewing um, public servants as playing games. Um, we need to be viewed as trusted authority figures and there's nobody who embodies that better than Attorney General Lawrence Washington.
2: Wow, that's thank you for that kind compliment. And But I wanted to make a statement first of all about my colleague, Phil Reiser, and, and that is that the great interchange here is that Phil approaches this responsibility with tremendous integrity. And and when he speaks, people listen. And the reason why is that Phil is very introspective. I mean, introspective about himself, but he's also introspective about organizations and about structure and about process and about people. And as a consequence, um, he has a great understanding. He comes at it from the prov- professorial perspective. And, and that is very powerful in terms of adding to a, a, a robust discussion. So I'm pleased to be here with him. And just listen the way he introduced this. <laughs> and he, he breaks out the elements as he starts. And so um, I want to compliment him because I enjoy working with him. We have different political perspectives, but those perspectives actually enhance our discussion and our friendship, they don't detract from it. And so I wanted to just compliment my my good friend, uh, Phil. Now you asked the question, Um, we have a role uh, as providing advice to legislatures and so forth. In Idaho, that happens by statute. And what the statute says is uh, upon request, I'm required to Render a legal opinion, not personal opinion, not public opinion, but a legal opinion uh, to state agencies and to the legislature. So first of all, is it happens upon request. They just don't go around, you know rendering these great, wonderful legal opinions. so it's a it has a specific set of requirements that there's a question, it, that question is related to facts, it's related, it's about law. And so that's how I am going to respond. Just like any of my other clients, and uh, in a normal attorney-client uh, relationship, I advise my clients. I don't make the decision for my clients, and my clients uh, make decisions. And then my obligation is to, within the bounds of the law, defend the decisions that they make. Oftentimes, uh, my clients don't want to accept my advice. I'm, I don't know about Phil. I'm, I'm certain his. You know, his powerful personality, he's able to persuade his clients, but uh, for some reason, uh, I just don't seem capable of always persuading my clients. But that doesn't dissipate my need and responsibility to defend their policy choices. Now, uh, I can give you an example, say on, on abortion, and that is a very hot topic throughout the nation. It's a hot topic in my state. It's a very hot topic in my legislature. Uh, And I'm often asked, does this proposal meet constitutional muster? My duty and obligation is to review that not based upon my personal viewpoint or anybody else's personal viewpoint, but rather, does this meet the requirements under the United States Constitution as enunciated by the United States Supreme Court? So we will offer an opinion and say either, yes, this meets constitutional muster or no, this does not meet constitutional muster. Unfortunately, what happens is people are too caught up in the policy part of it rather than the legal part of it. And then they will make accusations. Well, you're truly a communist or you're pro-abortion or you're anti-abortion or what, whatever their allegations may be, all of which is irrelevant and, and isn't true. It's not based upon my preconceived notions of whether it meets constitutional muster or not. Most recently, we've rendered opinions that uh, the proposals, a number of proposals on abortion didn't meet constitutional muster. Uh, They were passed anyway, which is the legislative right. They don't have to follow my advice. And then there is a lawsuit brought challenging the constitutionality of that piece of legislation. My obligation is to defend that, is to raise the legal arguments in defense of that policy choice, and which we do. And then at the point at which we lose, which we often do on those matters, uh, then the allegation is, you know, you're a bad lawyer, whatever else you didn't really believe in the case. And the answer is, that's is again, not relevant. Um, and But it is to provide advice to people. That is, we need to tell them what they need to know rather than what they want to hear. And that's critical. It is to call balls and strikes fairly and squarely. And if we do that, how that benefits the public is that the persons making public governmental decisions have the tools to make those decisions. And that doesn't mean they're gonna follow our advice all the time because they don't, but at least the proper decision-making
1: tools are on the table at the time the decision is made. If I could follow up, Allison, I think there's a statement that Lawrence made that is, to my mind, true north for all attorneys general. He says, as is sometimes the case, the legally correct decision may not be the politically convenient decision, but my responsibility is to the state of Idaho and the rule of law. That doesn't come from the situation he was just talking about with um, respect to abortion. It's a different context, but it's very important. My example is not a legal opinion, but it's defending the state of Colorado in a case that involves a challenge to our taxpayers' bill of rights, which Colorado has the most extreme taxpayer bill of rights provision in any state constitution. Um, In my mind, it's too extreme. It is a straitjacket that is um, problematic. There was a temporary... uh, loosening of it, but we are not in a good place with matters like school funding, um, transportation funding, et cetera. It's being challenged on a constitutional theory that is creative and is supported by every single um, member of the Democratic Party in the state legislature. So I'm on one side and every member of the Democratic Party in the state legislature is on the other side because I'm on the side of the state of Colorado and the rule of law and defending our laws. That's what an attorney general needs to do.
2: And let let me compliment my my friend Phil on having the courage to do that. On occasion, some of our colleagues, and I'm not being critical, and it's both political sides, buckle to the political pressure. I mean, there was an occasion when one of our colleagues said, well, I just want to be on the right side of history. This isn't a function of being on the right side of the history. It's not a function of trying to aggrandize ourselves or set ourselves up for some political future race. It is to be the lawyer who makes the hard call and represents his client, defends his client, makes the legal arguments in defense of the policy choices of his client, rather than usurping that authority exercised by other executive officers or the legislative branch of government. I compliment Phil for having
1: the courage to do that. Well, I get asked this question about this case or about other matters. How can you do something that might be against your own personal views? And I say, in the hierarchy of my personal views and philosophy, the highest value is the rule of law and living in a democratic republic. This is why Lawrence Wazen and I agree on 99% of what matters. We can have an honest discussion about abortion rights and the complexities and challenges on what the right policies might be. But if we don't live in a society that is governed by the rule of law and continues as a democratic republic, discussions about any range of important issues, transportation funding, healthcare, what have you, they're not gonna matter because it's all gonna be left to the whims of whoever might be in power. And John Adams had this great saying, um, we are a government of laws pardon the gendered language, not of men, by which he meant to say, we should not be at the mercy of the whim of whoever's in power. We need to have institutions that constrain judgment and that provide continuity so that people aren't really vulnerable because we don't have equal justice under the law. It depends on, are you a favored group or not? Are you rich? Or are you poor? A lot of countries around the world don't have the rule of law. And they envy us having it. We can't take it for granted.
2: and I, I couldn't I couldn't emphasize that more um, in terms of the rule of law and the way it is perceived around the world. We've done some work uh, internationally uh, in Mexico, El Salvador, uh, been to Cuba, and a lot of countries in, in Africa. And our understanding of the rule of law is unique in that it is actually the rule of law. Now I am seeing, and I think Phil you may agree that over time we're seeing a breakdown in that and on a number of, of levels. One of them is the rule of law operates in this way. There are facts and then there is the legitimate, objective, straightforward application of the law and there's two elements of breakdown. One of them is the issue regarding facts and that is. People are not at this point willing to accept true facts. They're, they are often searching for facts or made up facts that they think support their political viewpoint rather than starting from the base of this is these are the facts. I mean, if I walk outside and there's a tree, you got to say, that's a tree. That's a fact. It's not an opinion of whether there's a tree or not. It is an actual tree. And we can debate whether it's good, bad, or ugly, cut it down, not cut it down, too fat, too big, whatever else. But we have to start at the basis of that's a tree and there it is. And we have that element that's going on. Then we have a secondary element of uh, based upon this falsity of fact uh, that the outcome will be. And that's a whole another area of dispute and all that sort of thing. But it's if it's not built upon a foundation of actual fact, it all falls because it, it has no true basis. And we don't get to make up the facts and we don't get to make up the law. Oftentimes in my discussions with folks, they make up the law to be what they think the law is rather than what the law actually is. And so you have those two elements of fact and law that uh, seem to be in commotion at this point. And we, I think one of the things we're trying to accomplish is to put folks back in a mindset of, you know, there are a set of facts. And here's the law. We may debate the law. We may discuss the law. But there are two things here that have
1: some body, some structure to them that we can deal with. And the word Lawrence used before is integrity. And that's what Lawrence just exemplified integrity is acknowledging what the facts is, acknowledging what the law is, a fair application to it. We need a legal system, a justice system that is premised on integrity. That's how we earn trust. I want to call out one of our colleagues, Attorney General Chris Carr in Georgia, who was in a very difficult environment and who withstood pressures to honor the rule of law and to act with integrity. And we need more of that. And I want to compliment Chris as well. I mean, I called him during
2: that time period, tremendous personal attacks being made on him. Uh, and yet he had the guts and the integrity to stand up and say, you know, I'm doing my job. This is what I took an oath to do, and I'm going to do it. I don't care about what the personal sacrifice and personal price is, because the, the, the rule of law is more important than what I may experience personally. So I, again, I compliment Chris as well.
0: Well, thank you both for all of that insight on, on what it really takes to be an attorney general and, and how you serve people just by, you know, interpreting the law um, as as it is written. Um, I want to change gears a little bit because there's a really big topic um, in the news and something that I know attorneys general have been working on for years, um, and there's been developments recently, specifically the opioids epidemic in the United States. Um, There was a recent uh, coalition of attorneys general that announced agreements with Johnson & Johnson and three major pharmaceutical companies for their role in the epidemic. There was another settlement earlier this year announced with McKinsey & Company for its role in the opioid epidemic. Uh, love for you to give us a little bit of background on these settlements and how you think they will impact the epidemic as a whole across the country, but also in your own states. Um, General Weiser, do you want to start that one?
1: Let me start with the McKinsey case that we led in Colorado, and there are a few lessons from it. The first is we need business leaders to reflect on their conduct. We have consumer protection laws that call out deception, unfair treatment of consumers. And if you look at the opioid epidemic, you will see a range of decisions by individuals that were premised on greed, were not thinking about consequences. In the case of McKinsey, there were some partners who worked to turbocharge distribution of opioids by Purdue Pharma. There were times when pharmacies, for example, said there's too many opioids being pushed out here, it's wrong. And the response was, how do we get around that? Not, are we doing the right thing? So McKinsey now is being held accountable for that conduct. And to their credit, when I raised this concern and we were getting ready to file a case, they said they were willing to talk and to make amends. And we came up with a $575 million nationwide settlement. Many people who aren't in this world, the idea of a multi state is a whole um, animal unto itself that maybe my colleague. Lawrence Wozniak can describe, he has been through many, many of them. And the opportunity is to settle a case like this. We are now in Colorado in excess of $400 million coming back through a range of these cases. And we're working with our local partners through a framework to have that money drive more treatment opportunities, recovery opportunities, education prevention. We're in a deep hole. This all started with Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family pushing out OxyContin 25 years ago. No other nation in the world has an opiate epidemic problem like we do. We're going to take a lot of work to get our way out of it. Uh, this is an area that we have to stay vigilant on. We have to make sure these funds go to this purpose, and we need more money because this is not going to be enough. So, this is a, a real mission that we are all taking seriously. This, as you noted, is bipartisan. The multi state in McKinsey had 47 or 48 states.
2: That's a great. Summary of what's happened, I guess what I can add here, this did start with Purdue Pharma. And what they did was they sat down and orchestrated falsehoods in order to increase their sales of opioids. Some of the things that we have alleged and the evidence sustains is that they created this concept of a pseudo addiction. Uh, they blamed those who were addicted as being bad persons or what they were pushing was to doctors was to increase the uh, uh, dosages and to increase the number of dosages that the recipients received. And the purpose wasn't because uh, it was serving the patients, it was because it was serving the pocketbooks of Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family. That's what was happening. And that's what the facts show. And as a consequence, it created addiction, which came in the form of prescriptions and then non-prescriptions. As Phil mentions, the distributors were were participants here in that they have an obligation to, to look at how is the distribution of these opioids going. And they turned a blind eye, so to speak, a blind eye that filled their pocket with cash. And so that creates this responsibility that the manufacturers have, as well as the distributors. In the J&J case, it's about a $26 billion uh, settlement, about 119 million of that uh, comes to the state of Idaho. Uh, There's discussions going on now, that's not a completed settlement because discussions about what's the state portion, what's the local government portion, uh, Native American tribe portion, all of those kinds of things. So that's still in process. But you think about that amount of money, take $119 million, split between state and local and tribal governments, and, uh, and state and local governments, and will that solve the problem? And the answer is no, it's, it's not enough, because the problem is ongoing. It's been going on for 25 or 30 years. It, it, we have years into the future where this problem is going to exist. So uh, that isn't sufficient, but what's the role that we as attorney generals play? We don't make the policy choices that solve the problem. What we do is we have a lawsuit in front of us. We have, to, we have to take into account, what can we get? How can we get it? How soon does it come? What's the value of our evidence? Is it is it sustainable? We take all of those into account as we fashion a settlement, which is what our role is, is to, to fix that loss and either litigate it to an end or to uh, arrive at a settlement, which we have done. We now have to look to the policymakers and state government to help finish that, add the other elements necessary to really address this problem.
0: Thanks for that explanation. I think it will be very helpful for people who've you know, heard something in the news, know that that attorneys general are working on this, but what exactly does that mean? And that it's a really good explanation to say, your part is here, and then it's up to the your your state and local policymakers to take it to the next step. So, um, a similar area that's healthcare but also consumer protection related would be e-cigarettes. And I'd love to get some background from you both on uh, a letter that you both recently joined, asking the acting commissioner of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration about that's related to e-cigarettes and other tobacco products. Um, General Wazden, maybe can you explain the concerns that you? Outlined in this letter and, and what you hope will happen?
2: Yeah, in fact, it's probably it, to folks who aren't familiar with the whole tobacco issue. Uh, it's, they may think, well, it's odd that attorneys general are involved in this, but our involvement in tobacco goes back decades. Uh, and in fact, it, the uh, settlement, the master settlement agreement with the tobacco industry uh, over their marketing of cigarettes uh, in an unconscionable manner. Uh, with particularly as it relates to youth, uh, they had a—I mean—they created a tobacco institute whose whole purpose was to lie to the American public about the dangers of tobacco. And uh, so, this is a process we've we've gone through, and we're going through opioids right now. Uh, and so. We as attorneys general came together and we litigated with the tobacco industry and did so successfully and it created an agreement which uh, requires tobacco companies to pay two states uh, to to repair the damages done by the behavior in which they engage. We have similar concerns about e-cigarettes among other things, the use of flavors. Uh, For example, a bubblegum flavor probably doesn't appeal to a 40-year-old man. Uh, It may appeal to a youth. And again, we have concerns about the use of these flavors, particularly as they are used to market to youth. Um, And so we then joined a number of our other colleagues talking to FDA saying, you know, exercise your responsibility here. Uh, because uh, using these um, flavors uh, disadvantages youth. Now you say, well, it's an e-cigarette, it's not a tobacco product, but the problem is that the nicotine that is is within that e-cigarette is derived from tobacco. And the the statute specifically addresses that. This is the proper entity to address the issue. And it has that uh, addictive power and that means that we are attempting to to addict youth that would not otherwise be using this expanding that and there are a myriad of health issues that are going to arise. Others would argue well yeah but they're not using tobacco. That actually is not necessarily sustained by the facts. They begin using e-cigarettes and they also then would then use uh, nor, not normal and combustible tobacco products. So there's a whole ear, uh, set of issues with regard, particularly to youth. And our one of our greatest concerns was the use of flavors to enhance and attract youth.
1: If I can just exp- expand briefly, the tobacco story is a painful one. Youth were targeted. People may be too young to remember the Joe Camel ads, They were focusing on getting young people addicted. That was part of the business model and strategy, even though they were not lawful users of the product. Today, we have seen that story again happening with e-cigarettes. We are suing Juul for a social media influencer campaign. Cool kids or Juuling is cool. They they knew what they were doing, and they were trying to get people hooked. And now we have a teen vaping epidemic. Colorado has been among the highest states. teen vaping, and so we're addressing it. What is interesting to me and and notable about both these two topics, opioids and uh, vaping, is they're both public health issues. And one of the roles that I found myself playing is being very involved in public health issues, something that I wasn't, I knew I was signing up to defend the rule of law. I didn't realize how much I was signing up to be engaged in public health.
0: Yeah, I mean, that is interesting because So many of the the topics that you work on as attorney general impact people's lives in ways that aren't always obvious. Um, So I know we're we're running short on time and I wanted to just both. Nothing
2: wrong with being short. I just want you to know that there's nothing wrong with being short.
0: (laughs) I was not making a comment about anyone's height. (laughs) I want to ask you in wrapping up, I mean, you both talked about integrity and responsibility and the true north of the rule of law. Um, any thoughts that you want to share with our listeners are just about leadership in the legal profession? And I'll tie it to the fact that you are both leaders of NAG. You both serve on the NAG Executive Committee. Um, and I appreciate hearing from you what you believe the role of an organization like NAG is in helping attorneys general like yourself in fulfilling those responsibilities and working with your, your peers uh, on issues that are really just tied to the rule of law. General Weiser, do you wanna start?
1: I, I will, um, I'll start with NAG and I'll, I'll broaden out. I was privileged enough to be on a NAG trip to Israel, um, which had attorneys general from both political parties thinking about the rule of law in the context of another nation and learning about issues like water and cybersecurity that we have to deal with here in Colorado and all across the U.S. I also co-chair the NAG federalism committee um, with Attorney General David Yost of Ohio. And it's important to defend federalism as a principle that is not uh, a fair weather federalism principle. We care about federalism in the role of states, no matter who's in the White House. NAG convenes and enables support around legal issues that all states can join, and that's important. Finally, and this is the broader point that we have lots of work we can continue doing, we need to create and cultivate a politics committed to listening and learning from different points of view, where where Lawrence started. Um, I clerked for Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. and got to witness her relationship with Justice Scalia, which was founded on respect, on a commitment to listening and dialogue, That's what we need, and that can translate into collaborative problem solving along the lines we discussed, the opioid epidemic, protecting consumers, uh, public health issues like vaping and defending the rule of law. So we are living in a time when we need state attorneys general to be in dialogue, engage one another. NAG provides a valuable platform uh, and convening function, and I've um, been privileged to be able to be a part of it.
2: I want to actually compliment my colleague, Phil, because he truly embodies what he's talking about here, and that is the relationship between uh, Justice Ginsburg and Justice Scalia. Uh, Phil has started a project where called the 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 Scalia Ginsburg Project, in which we bring people of differing political viewpoints, and sit down and have a dialogue. We just had the the first meeting on that uh, a few weeks ago. Very productive uh, and surprising the kind of dialogue that occurs in an environment of respect and trust uh, where you can have differing views and not be disagreeable. You can disagree without being disagreeable and have respect And, and actually what happens is you end up learning things from a different perspective. And that actually enhances your understanding and knowledge. And sometimes it reaffirms what you already know, and sometimes it changes what you think you already know. That is a healthy uh, educational environment. Got one quick story to tell, you talk about True North. NAG provides an opportunity for us to collaboratively have a place, a safe place where we can have that dialogue. One of the things that happens is that under the Master Settlement Agreement we talked about in tobacco, there's an entity called uh, the Truth Initiative. It used to be called um, Legacy. And um, one there are uh, two AGs, a Republican and a Democrat, who serve as board members of Legacy. I was one of those board members for a decade. Uh, and there was a very large controversy was with the Washington Post and all kinds of things happened. And I was called upon as the chairman at that time to try and steer that organization through. Well, I relied upon my experience in NAG and the things that I've worked with my colleagues, and we were able to successfully complete that, that dispute, that problem, and keep our heads on. And we came out on the other side, a little bit battered, but quite frankly, in a much better position than we would otherwise have been. One of my colleagues at, at that institution gave me a gift. I, I keep it on my desk. I know you're not gonna see this, but it's a compass. It's a compass because it points true north. And uh, I keep it on my desk as a reminder that that's my job. My job is to point true north. And she said, "She said I wanted to compliment you because everybody was running around with their heads cut off and there was one person who continued to point true north. And I couldn't think of a greater compliment, nor can I think of a more important responsibility than for us as attorneys general to continue to point true north, despite where the winds are, the political winds, the financial winds, uh, the the personal winds, whatever the winds are, we have to point true north. And if we do that, we have served faithfully as Attorney General. And top that, can
1: you?
0: I don't think so. I think we found the perfect place to end. So I, I just want to thank you both. This has been so enlightening, and I appreciate learning from both of you about your you know your drive and passion to serve your your constituents, but work together and solve problems on on behalf of everyone in the country. Really, so thank you for your time today and for for this wonderful conversation. I appreciate it.
2: Thank you, and I want to compliment Phil. Honestly, I am grateful for his friendship and for his professionalism, for his ethics, and for his personal kindness. So thank you, Phil.
1: Right back at you, Lawrence. You're you are a model of true north.
0: Wonderful. Thanks. Bye bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The People's Lawyer. We look forward to bringing you additional insights about the nonpartisan work of America's 56 state and territory attorneys general in future episodes. In the meantime, you can learn more at maag.org or email podcast at nag.org.